how do you influence others? Does your influence point the people around you to Christ and the gospel and to your heavenly Father? Or does your influence point them somewhere else? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Tom is continuing his current series that's titled The Power of Your Influence. He has part five today. Tom is continuing to study the power of influence, taking into consideration the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you follow Jesus, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Today you'll learn four truths about the power of your influence as the light of the world, light that exposes that which is sinful while pointing out that which is beautiful, excellent, and desirable. But before we begin today, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. Tom? You know, Bill, I think the most encouraging thing that we're going to see in this passage is that we as believers are the light of the world. He doesn't say we should be. He says we are. Jesus is essentially saying, if you're really my disciples, if you have been transformed by the work of the Spirit, then you are the light of the world. And you can't change that. That's just who you are. It's true of all genuine believers. And so what we're learning is how to make the most of who we are to truly be that light in the darkness around us wherever the Lord has us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. We come again to that picture Jesus gives of our influence. He says it's like light. Genesis 1 tells us that God himself created light. And so by divine design, we are surrounded with light. Whether it's from the sun and the moon and the stars, or whether it's from the firelight or candlelight, or from the artificial sources of light that through uh, allowing man to uncover it, man has created. However you look at it, light permeates our daily lives. What amazes me about that is that something that is so much a part of our everyday lives, something we so much take for granted, we walk into a room and we turn on the light switch and we expect there to be light. We walk outside in the morning and there's light. There's light streaming through even the skylights of this room. Even though it is so much a part of our lives, it still remains shrouded in mystery. What exactly is light? Ever thought about that question? What is light? Perhaps the first truly scientific theory of light was that of Isaac Newton. Newton believed that light was composed of particles. And his particle theory dominated scientific thought until the early 1800s. For more than 100 years, that theory reigned. But in the early 1800s, Thomas Young hypothesized that instead of particles, light was composed of waves and that theory reigned for a, about a hundred years or more as well. Until last century, the birth of quantum mechanics. And with the birth of, of that view of the world, the general consensus among the scientific community today is that light is neither 
particle nor wave, but instead it is a combination of the two, of both waves and particles. It is a duality. However, there, there may be a general consensus, but what is clear from the scientific literature, to whatever extent I may, very small extent I may understand it, is the issue is far from fully resolved. The nature of light is still a mystery. It's interesting because God himself speaks of the mystery of light to Job. Job lived at the time of patriarchs, 2,000 years before Christ, and God said this to Job as he corrected his thinking. God said in Job 38, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. In Scripture, light is often connected to the person of God. Psalm 104 verse 2 describes God as covering himself with light as a cloak. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that God possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Light so blazing that we couldn't exist in its presence apart from his grace, we would be instantly incinerated. 1 John chapter 1 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So it shouldn't surprise us, should it, when God is described and connected in such a way with light, that when Jesus came into the world, he called himself the light of the world. We saw that last week in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus essentially stood in that magnificent temple court with those huge, massive candelabras around him that had been set ablaze the night before. And he said, I and I alone am the light of the entire world. With that statement, Jesus said that the entire world lives in perpetual darkness, that he himself is the only true source of light, both the source of truth and the source of purity, that he himself is the only source of truth and purity in all places, at all times, and for all people, including for you, for me. So in the ultimate sense then, Christ alone is, is the true light of the world. That makes it remarkable, I think, that in the passage we return to today in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says his followers, we are also the light of the world. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In that paragraph, Jesus essentially makes this point. If you belong to me, Jesus says, if you're a part of my spiritual kingdom, if you're a true follower of mine, then God has given you a powerful influence on the world around you. 
And he uses two images to communicate the power of our influence. The image of salt and the image of light. So we looked at verse 13 a couple of weeks ago. We are the salt of the earth. As I pointed out at the time, the major use of salt in the ancient world was as a preservative to keep meat from rotting and decaying, to arrest its decay. Jesus calls us salt to show the power of our preserving, purifying influence in the world. By our very presence, by being Christians and being in the rottenness of the world, we combat the moral and spiritual decay all around us. Last week, we began just to examine the second illustration, to look at the background of it. But in verses 14 to 16, Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. Now understand, Jesus is not changing subjects here. He is still talking about the power of Christian influence. Here is a second illustration, essentially making the same basic point. So what are the similarities between these two illustrations, between salt and light? What do they have in common? Well, both are common items in every home, would have been in the first century. Every home would have had salt. Every home would have had some kind of a little lamp that provided light at nighttime. Both of these, salt and light, were made by God. Both must be placed by a third party in order to work. Someone must place the salt on the meat and someone must light the lamp and place it on the lampstand within the home. Both of them have limited impact alone. A single grain of salt must be joined with others to have any significant impact. And for a city set on a hill to be seen at night, a single lamp must be joined with other lamps. Both salt and light are completely unlike what they influence. And both of them describe the world in horrific terms. Salt describes it as rotten and decaying. And light describes the world as complete and utter darkness. So those are the similarities between these two illustrations. But there's also one notable difference. Salt is primarily negative. It arrests decay and rottenness. Light is also negative. It has a negative side. We'll talk about that. But it is significantly positive. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus tells us four specific truths about the power of our influence. The first truth is this. Our influence is illuminating. Our influence is illuminating. Notice the beginning of verse 14. You are the light of the world. Again, as with the first metaphor, the word you in the Greek text is emphatic. You, my disciples, and you alone are the light of the world. This is true of all genuine Christians without exception. If you're a true believer, you are light. You can't change that. That's who you are. And it is only true of genuine Christians. Now, when Jesus compares us to light here, what kind of light is he referring to? Clearly in this context, Jesus is not comparing us to the sun or to the moon or as Paul does in another place, and we'll see in a few minutes, to stars. That's not what Jesus does here. Instead, he compares us 
to two specific kinds of light that are really one and the same. The first is found in the second half of verse 14. It is the collective light from the lamps of an entire city at night. And then in verse 15, he compares us to the light of an individual lamp in a one-room home. What is this lamp? Well, Jesus was referring to a small terracotta bowl that held a small amount of olive oil. It was often enclosed, and it had a hole to pour oil into it, the oil that it burned. It had a wick, and sometimes it had a little handle at the back for transporting it around the home. Like with salt in the first metaphor, notice where we're to give this lamplight. The sphere of our collective influence as Christians is the entire world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. In other words, he was telling his disciples, listen, I'm not talking about you're just being an influence in this little tiny nation of Israel to the Jewish people. Instead, I'm going to spread you around the world and you will be salt and light everywhere you go. Now, by being Christians, Jesus says, we serve as light to the entire world. The question is how? As with salt, light is a metaphor. Just to dissect it a little, that means in this metaphor, all Christians are the topic. That's what Jesus is talking about. Light is the image, so the key question then is what is the point of similarity? What quality or qualities do light and Christians have in common? Well, let's start answering that question by looking at the function of an oil lamp in the first century, which is the image Jesus is using. What did it do? How did it function? Well, essentially, an actual lamp's light in the first century served two primary functions. First of all, it exposed what was hidden in the darkness. Growing up, as you know, if you've been a part of our church at any time at all, you know I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. And in Mobile, we lived there by the coast. I was about 17 miles from Mobile Bay and from the Gulf of Mexico, and it was very humid. It never was too cold, and so it was an atmosphere in which not only did humidity thrive, but so did insects. So we had a serious problem with roaches. I mean serious roaches, and lots of them. And it was practically impossible to get rid of them. And when it was dark, you couldn't see them, but you knew they were there. (laughs) And if you turned on the light, (laughs) then you could see them. I remember turning on the light in my dad's garage and watching the roaches scatter. In fact, sometimes it was so bad they'd be lined up in groups of 25 doing calisthenics and (laughs) push-ups. That's what light does. A room may look fine in the darkness, but turn on all the lights and the dirt and the clutter and the insects become apparent. Light exposes those things you really don't want to see that are hidden in the darkness. But light also, a second function of a lamp or a light, is to enable you to see more clearly those things that you do want to see, those things that are beautiful and attractive. Those are not two distinct purposes, but really there are two aspects of the same purpose. One is negative, to expose that which is dirty and filthy and undesirable. The other is positive, to allow you to see those things that are beautiful and attractive and desirable. 
So light then, we could put it like this, light allows us to see reality, to see things as they really are, to see those things that are dirty and filthy, but also to see those things that are beautiful and attractive and desirable. As Christians, we serve both of those functions in a dark world. By our presence, we expose that which is sinful. And by our presence, we point to that which is beautiful and excellent and desirable. This was true even in the life of our Lord. He was light in this way. Let me show you that. Turn to John 3. As light, he served both that negative purpose, exposing the sinfulness of people, but also making that which was attractive to be seen as well. Look at John 3, verse 19. Here John the Apostle, writing of our Lord, says, this is the judgment, or this is the reason that judgment is going to come. The light has come into the world. The light here is Jesus, has come into the world. That's the incarnation. He came into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. Why would that make them hate the light? Look at verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Here's the issue. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. He doesn't want the light because in the light he sees who he really is. He sees his sin. The light shows him for what he is. When you and I live as Christians in the world, when we're what we ought to be in Christ, our pursuit of God and holiness, our desire to love God and love one another, it turns the light on the darkness of the sin of the people around us. The contrast becomes obvious. This year, I'm doing something, using a plan of reading through the Bible I've not used before. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's the plan of Robert Murray McShane. Basically, you start at five places in the Scripture, five different places, and you're reading through different sections each day. And yesterday, I was catching up a little bit in Genesis, and I read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And, you know, Lot was certainly not the light he should have been in that culture, right? I mean, obviously not. And yet... What happened that night when the angels arrived and the men of Sodom showed up and Lot refused to give his guests to these Sodomites? What did they say? You are acting as a what? Judge. You are judging us. Really? I don't think Lot had ever judged them like he ought to have. What were they saying? They were saying... Lot, by the very fact that you won't go along and participate in this sin with us, it's like you're judging us. What was happening there? His unwillingness to sin in that way was a light that showed up the roaches in their soul. And that's how we are. When we live as we ought to live, when we do what we ought to do, It's a light that shows the people around us the darkness of their lives, the sin and filth in their lives by contrast. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 21. Here's how John finishes. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds, that is his his good, his excellent deeds, might be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, light serves both purposes. Jesus served both purposes. His light showed the filth and sin in some lives, but it also showed that which was good and excellent. 
and desirable and attractive. And we serve the same purpose in the world. When you and I are what we ought to be, our lives expose the sin in other people's lives, not because we're sitting in judgment on them, simply because we are different than they are, and that difference turns on the light to who they are, and they don't like what they see. And so we get accused of being super pious, even though we've never done that. We've never sat in judgment in the negative, pejorative sense. And our presence shows that which is beautiful, shows Christ and the gospel. Now again, in this metaphor, Jesus paints a very unflattering picture of the world. In the salt metaphor, Jesus describes the world as rotten and decaying. And remember, we're not talking about the planet, we're t- although that may be true, that is true as well, according to Romans 8, but we're talking about people here, the people of the world. They're rotten and decaying. In the metaphor of light, Jesus describes the world as characterized by complete and utter darkness. It's ironic, isn't it, how often the world champions its enlightenment? Jesus says, there's no enlightenment, it's dark. They live in the darkness of spiritual error and ignorance and blindness. They live in the darkness of slavery to sin. And it is in that darkness that you and I are to be light. We are to bring the light of the truth. We are to bring the light of moral purity. And when we are light in that way, we expose what is hidden in the darkness that people don't want to see about themselves. And we also turn a light on the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And here's the remarkable thing. Only Christians bring light into the world. Have you ever thought about that? No assembly of world leaders, no group of the great minds of our world, not the scholars, the academics, the intellectuals, no one else can bring light into the world, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. Lloyd-Jones put it this way, there is obviously no light at all in this world apart from the light that is provided by Christian people and the Christian faith. That's it. It's the only light this world has. Everything else is darkness. The second truth about our influence, not only is our influence illuminating, but Jesus goes on to say it is inevitable. Look at the second half of verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now understand here, Jesus didn't get lost in his own thoughts. He's not changing subjects. He's not mixing metaphors, nor is he changing metaphors. He is still comparing us and our influence to light. So why does he bring up a city on a hill? Well, understand that before there were fighter jets, before there were bombers, before there were air forces, the safest place to build a city was on the top of a hill. It was the most easily defended position. In addition to that, before there were air conditioners, building on the top of a hill or a mountain ensured that in the afternoon and evening, you got the cool breezes that would sweep across the land. And so that's how most ancient cities were built. In fact, even today, if you go to the land of Israel or even some European countries, like Italy, for example, a lot of the medieval towns are built on the top of hills. And at nighttime... In the first century, when all the lamps and torches in a given town or city were ablaze, you could literally navigate through the countryside by following the light from those hilltop cities. And many of those cities were built with native white limestone, which caused whatever lamps were lit in that city to be reflected and to shed their light far afield. What you could not do was hide the light cast through the darkness from one of those hilltop cities. 
In fact, in more modern times, one of the greatest difficulties during war is hiding the lights of cities. We've all read about the the blackout restrictions that were in place in Europe during World War II to try to shield them from the bombers that came at night. It's really hard to hide the lights of a city. Jesus is saying, if you are a true follower of His, it is difficult, as difficult to hide your light of influence as it is to hide the light of a city that's built on a hill. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, The Power of Your Influence. He'll have part six for you next time, and we do hope you'll join us. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.